Thanks, Jim. Hey, everybody. It's Curtis from ScottCinema.com here with the Malt Movie Minute. In this edition, we spotted two drams in one film. What film, you ask? Well, none other than Guy Ritchie's debut, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. This 1998 heist flick starring Jason Statham and Vinnie Jones is an instant classic, and so are the whiskeys. We spotted Oban, 14-year-old, during the high-stakes card game scene. Finally, after the countless Scotch sightings from movies and TV shows at Scotch Cinema, it was just a matter of time, I guess, before the Oban reared its head. You can spot it about 25 minutes into the movie. Look for the bottle to pop up several times during the scene, but it would help if you watch it on Blu-ray and on HDTV. The bottle was hard to spot with all the jump cut editing during the card game. I did my best to maintain as much of the original DVD quality as possible while uploading it to the site, but some of you may still have to uh, squint <laughs> to pick it out. The next scene contains one of several black label sightings you'll find over at Scotch Cinema. Toward the end of the film, we find the crime boss known as Hatchet Harry sipping some Johnny Walker Black while cleaning his priceless antique rifles. It's a large vintage bottle of black label. There's a few spoilers in this scene, so you may wish to watch the film in its entirety before viewing the clip out of context. Well, that ought to do it for now, folks. Many more Scotch sightings to come, so don't forget to keep listening to the Malted Muse podcast. And back to you, Jim. Hello, and thank you for downloading this episode of the Malted Muse podcast. Well, that unusual start to this week's episode was courtesy of Curtis from Scotch Cinema. Now, Curtis has agreed to send me these clips occasionally, and I want to make them, uh, if possible, a regular feature of the podcast. Now, there's a reason for me doing this. In fact, there's more than one reason. One is, I think Curtis's site is brilliant. It adds an extra dimension and interest to the world of whiskey. And I've spoken to Curtis about this in the past, and that is in previous episodes. There is a link to Curtis's website on my website. And it's a pleasure, it's a joy, I think it's really interesting to have that now part of the Morted Muse podcast. However, I do have an ulterior motive. And my ulterior motive is, as much as I like having Curtis's presence on this podcast, I don't think it's going to last long. And here's why. I think that sooner or later, somebody who edits an international whiskey magazine is going to hear this and is going to think to themselves, do you know something? That deserves to be in my magazine. And that actually is where I'd like to see Curtis. I think what Curtis does is interesting. I think it's fascinating. And I think it would be a brilliant feature in a magazine, a whiskey magazine. Why not? So, if there's any editors of whiskey magazines out there, you know who you are, and you're listening to this, just think about that. And if you want to steal Curtis from me, go ahead and do so, because I'd love to see it. Anyway, back to the rest of this episode. 
Anyone who's been following some of my tweets lately will know that after a little bit of a delay, I've actually tasted Compass Box's new Great King Street, the Artist Blend, that comes in at 43% ABV. And what a masterpiece this is. And I did say that I'd say a little bit about it here. Now, if you want more details about about that by listening to this podcast i'd ask you to go back to episode 45 it's the one that's called maiden voyages and i give a quite a bit of information about compass boxes great king street in that episode but just very quickly i've now tasted it and what do i think about it well i found it at a clear pale colour a yellow hue to that its legs I thought were quite close together mid to wide in their distance and and quite slow as it creeped down the glass the nose I thought was actually crisp it had elements of nutmeg and pepper but also with that slight citric nose of fresh lemon to it as well and as for the taste wow a taste hard to describe it's smooth but peppered in its texture it's creamy but also complex it's very balanced it's you see it's mellow but still with character it's so well balanced that it's hard to know which flavor to go for first it's not that floral it's not smoky what is it it's like a butter toffee with cream is absolutely gorgeous now those are just some of the things i pulled out of it and as always you could find something very different you could find something completely different and that is fine because everybody tastes differently and that's only one of the reasons why i'm not going to give it a score because i don't give anything a score if i had to give a thumbs up or a thumbs down For me, this one is definitely a thumbs up. I loved it. Now, I've also got a couple of personal announcements to make. One is I will be doing a tasting event in Chesterfield in Derbyshire um, coming up very soon. That's going to be on the 1st of October. It's at a small cafe called Mezami, which is down the Chatsworth Road in in Chesterfield in Derbyshire I can't give too many details of that at the moment places are going to be severely limited I think actually there's only going to be about 20 places there it's part of a food festival and it looks like it's going to be a lot of fun Um, as soon as I get more details as to ticket price and where to get those from I'll let people know but that's going to be at Mezzamy Chatsworth Road 1st of October in the evening I'm really looking forward to that The other announcement I want to say is that next week and the week after I am going to be away. I'm going quite a distance. I'm going to be in a different time zone and I don't know whether I'm going to be able to get internet access. So that might cause some disruption to the podcast over the next two or three weeks. I will I'm going to make the promise that I will do my best to continue to put out a weekly whiskey podcast. I'm taking some equipment with me so I can try my best to do that, but I can't guarantee it's going to come out and I can't guarantee that it's going to be at the same time of a Tuesday night. 
all I can promise is that I will do my best. I've had news recently of what looks to be a really interesting whiskey event coming up in London. It's run by Connoisseur and to help me understand this better and to give a bit of promotion to it I was very fortunate to talk to Pierre from Connoisseur. Now the only problem I have to say is as always there are huge technical problems with this. I lost internet connection, Um, I had all sorts of distractions, I had a telephone call halfway through but somehow or other with Pierre's patience we managed to cobble together an interview. Please listen to this because he's given out some information here about an event coming up that looks like it's going to be absolutely wonderful. Pierre, lovely to talk to you. And obviously we're going to talk about the Pure Festival that's coming up. And when I was a child, I was taught that if you want to understand something well, there's six basic questions you need to ask. But I was taught that at primary school, which was a long time ago. (laughs) (laughs) Shall we see if they work? Let's give it a go. Why not? (laughs) Now, the first question is what? What is the Pure Festival? What is this thing we're going to talk about? Well, it's a uh, it's a festival of whiskey and music, and um, that that should be fairly self explanatory. But essentially, it's uh, it's it's a music festival with a difference in that you can go along and you can sample whiskeys, right. and it's a whiskey festival with a difference in that, you, as well as sampling some great whiskeys, you can listen to some fa- some fantastic music. Fantastic. Okay, so that brings us on to the next question, which is when when's it going to happen? What date? What sort of time? It's over two days, uh, Saturday and Sunday, the 24th and 25th of September um, in London at the, uh, the Relentless Garage in uh, just near Highbury and Islington Tube. Right. And uh, it will and be... And is that a daytime do, or evening do? It will be, well, I was, yeah, it, it will run from 4pm till 10pm. Uh, from 4, 4 till 7 is when the whiskey sort of show part of it happens. Um, there'll be some music going on there. There, there, there are several stages. Um, and then from 7pm, the, the whiskey packs up and uh, the, the main room is given over to, to, to become the, the main stage. So that's quite important. If you, if, you, if you want to come along and you want to taste some whiskeys, you need to make sure you get there between 4 and 7 o'clock. Okay. Right. And in fact, you've answered two questions there. So we've just done when. We've also done where. So it's at the garage. Mm-hmm. Um, why? Why is this happening? Well, essentially, we, we felt that um, there are some great whiskey shows around. Um, uh, you know, we're particular fans of, of the whiskey show um, or the, the Whiskey Exchange Whiskey Show. I forget what it's called now, which is, mm-hmm. you know, it's a great event for really sort of seasoned whiskey drinkers. But, you know, tickets for that, I think, are somewhere around the £100 mark. Um, and And you've really got to already be seriously into whiskey to, to come along to an event like that. Um, what, what we wanted to do was something that's um, maybe a little bit sort of catering more towards the kind of entry level. Um, people that love good music but want to learn a little bit of, uh, you know, about whiskey. Right. Having said that, um, that doesn't mean to say that there isn't going to be whiskey on offer at our show um, that will interest serious whiskey fans. Um, we've got Dominic Rusgro, who you've no doubt heard of, who... Sure is running um, a stand uh, where he's going to be presenting the the World Whiskey Masters Medal winners. So that's essentially world whiskey. So from, you know, South Africa, 
um, Sweden, you know, Australia, all over the place. And so there should be some really interesting bottles there, um, as well as, you know, the, the, the more well-known names that will be exhibiting, you know, on, under their own brands. Right. And when you talk about, this brings us on to the who part. So when you're talking about people being there, who who are some of those well-known brands that are going to be there? But also, of course, the music side of it, who's going to be there on the music side of it? Well, on the music side, um, we've got, uh, the, the, there's a slightly different feel to the two days. So the Saturday, if you like, is is a little bit more rocky. Uh, and the Sunday slightly more folky. So the Saturday lineup, the headliners are the Ravenettes, and I have a feeling that's their only um, UK gig uh, this side of Christmas. Right. We've got the the Electric Soft Parade. Um, we've got Charlie Waller uh, on the main stage, and then on the Sunday we've got um, the headliner is James Yorkston, who you might know as a, 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 a sort of more folky Scottish act. We've got the Smoke Fairies. Um, we've got Cassidy, who are again one of the hottest bands in Scotland at the moment and one of the bands that I'm particularly excited uh, uh, or acts that I'm excited about is Steve Mason um, who some of you may know was from the Beta Band so that, that's that's a, a really um, really good lineup on the Sunday as well and on the whiskey side of it on the whiskey side we've got um, Ardbeg um, as, who, as you know don't do that many shows these days so we're really pleased to have them along we've got Anok, we've got White and Mackay who won't be bringing um, it's not the Dalmore side of things uh, they are actually bringing their full range of, of blended scotch which actually that that's one that I'm really quite interested by um, because I think a lot of people obviously know the kind of really entry level stuff they do the original and the 13 but they'll be bringing some of the older blends with them um, which would be really exciting we've got Cooley from Ireland um, who are bring, bringing a selection of their whiskies. we've got Talisker we've got Dominic's Table obviously um, and there's a couple more that I'd love to tell you about, but I'm hoping by the end of this week we'll have confirmed. But but there there are some there are some other sort of interesting whiskies coming along as well. But you're going to have to uh, check out our website to find out yeah. more about that. Yeah, I'm mean, I'm finding this quite interesting to see. I mean, I know you said that it's going to be the whiskey in the early part, then the music in the latter part, but it's going to be interesting to see how the whiskey and the music actually relate to each other. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, whether the folky music will relate better with some of the other whiskies as opposed to the rock music with, if you understand what, I, what I'm... No, what no, I, I, know, I know exactly what you mean. I, yeah. I mean, we've actually been working with a company called Brand New Music who who have kind of helped us with the music side of things. And we have actually put together a programme of bands that, one, we think, you know, will work with whiskey i mean that's a really difficult thing to sort it's very subjective you know what which music goes with whiskey but one of the other things is that we've gone for bands who have expressed an interest in whiskey themselves so some of them are real whiskey fans and and that's that's quite important yeah 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 that sounds absolutely fantastic now of course the last question on all this you know the what when where why who is of course how and then in this case I have to ask, how do people find out more about this? How do they get tickets? Well, actually, there might be there might be two parts of the how because it can be how can they get tickets and how much. And and I actually think that that that's, this is quite an important one. It's twenty eight pounds fifty, um, and you get to see eight bands per day. That's that's the daily ticket. So it's twenty eight fifty. You get to sample the, the whiskies that are on offer, and you get to watch all these great bands. So the the how much is the answer is it's is really good value it's incredibly good value yeah um and how do you get tickets well you can visit purefestival.com purefestival all, all one word dot com um and there's 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 a, a very prominent buy tickets link um and they're available also through hmv and i think the mean fiddler 
box office and, and from the venue. Okay, that's brilliant. Just one more question, just for the sake of listeners who are listening to you talk, they have heard me call you Pierre, may not quite yet put a face to the name. Anybody going to Whiskey Live events may have met you in Whiskey Live London. That's correct. That they that I run something called connoisseur.com, which is um, the whiskey social network, which um, you probably are aware of. It's it's a very busy whiskey site, um, and we run um, sort of digital events at other whiskey shows. So you'll see us, in fact, as well as our own show this year, you'll see us at the whiskey show, um, Sakinda show that's coming up, and we bring something along to those called uh, the Whiskey Pod, which is a, a video review booth where you can you can bring your whiskey in and and you can you know uh record a sort of 60 or second two minute review um and a lot of whiskey fans will already know about that and uh so i'm the guy uh often to be seen there trying to badger people into to give us a review yeah yeah and good fun it is as well pierre thank you ever so much for your time and especially under the circumstances of all the technical problems that we've had during the interview <laughs> um that's absolutely wonderful no um, and it's been great to speak to you Well, it's not the first time that I have to give out news like this, trying to hold back the jealousy within my voice. But Bushmills have done it again. The Make It To Bushmills competition, it's taken place. Winners have been announced. Let me read the press release to you. South African friends take home global whiskey prize. A marketing consultant and an orthotist from South Africa have on the 17th of august 2011 won a global competition hosted by bushmills irish whiskey that will see the world famous old bushmills distillery go on tour to a city in the rainbow nation jonathan oros olive who's 28 from durban and sean tickner 30 from cape town were together chosen as the winners of make it to bushmills winning two weeks working at the world-famous Old Bushmills Distillery, where they will make their own unique blend of Bushmills Irish whiskey, live in a luxury penthouse accommodation and get £5,000 spending money. After their experience, Jonathan and Sean will take home the distillery with the ultimate Bushmills party that will be held in a South African city this year. The pair, who are married to identical twin sisters, met while bodyboarding at North Beach in Durban 15 years ago and have been friends ever since. Jonathan said, It's amazing to be named the winners of Make It to Bushmills. We came to the global final here at, in Bushmills to do our country proud. We can't wait to take the distillery home to South Africa. Well, they've won that after a whole series of challenges and there was competition there and it's a range of challenges as well that included barrel rolling, beach golfing, whiskey tasting and more. Well done and good luck and I'm sure that the rest of the year is going to go well for them. This episode, I want mainly to be one of those episodes where it explores some of the more basic aspects of whiskey, 
um, because I think it's good to go back to the basics sometimes, refresh our memories about it. And if you're new to whiskey, it gives you that chance to find out a bit more information. Sometimes those things that you know you're a bit unsure about, but you're too nervous to ask. And hopefully some of that will be covered here. But it's also to do with not taking some things for granted. Now I want to say that it's hard to know when distillation began. Because when you think about distilling things, nowadays we tend to think about alcohol. Or at least I do. But it's not the only thing that gets distilled. The collection of water from steam is a form of distillation. And that must have been happening a long, long, long time ago. Those early primitive stills that were used to gather up the vapours to make perfume and to suspend and, and make solutions of medicines. Those early stills were to travel the world following trade routes, Egypt, China, and eventually adapting themselves and producing spirits the world over. Brandy, schnapps, raki, vodka, gin, rum and many, many more. Now, I often find it strange that it is with great frequency that a group or an individual, when looking for a symbol to represent their association with whiskey, will base a logo or an avatar on something related to a still. Now, why is that? Why not a glass? A glass, you see, is easy to understand. It represents the finished product. The fact that the whiskey itself is there in the glass. Now many people do do this. The shape of a tasting glass vying for association over that of a whiskey tumbler is quite common to see on things like Twitter, on the internet. The image of the glass shows the product. There are very few that actually show the ingredients. Images of grain or yeast, even water, are much less common. Casks, well, there's a thing. Plenty of images of casks are used, and for good reason. It's got such a strong association with whiskey. Much of whiskey flavour comes from the cask, and the design of the cask gives good space to easily add in text, or other logos, other imagery. Less frequent are images of worms or condensers or of spirit saves or mash tons. There still, somehow, seems to say so much, even if it is more to do with removing flavour than adding it. It's one of those that takes away more than it gives and yet somehow gives so much more than it takes away. But despite all this, the still is the cauldron. It is the place associated with the magic of whiskey making. Okay, so it can take a year to grow the barley, then the time to malt it, mash it, ferment it, and sometimes it can take decades involved in maturation. But the relatively short time spent in the still is where it is seen as the place where it happens.
When Jeremy Clarkson of Top Gear fame was asked how a turbocharger worked on a car engine, he basically said, petrol and air goes in one end, witchcraft happens, power comes out the other. And for most of us, a similar process is seen with the still. It's that place where the witchcraft happens, where the dark arts are performed. There is, however, reasons for it. Although science is catching up with centuries of crafted practice, much of the knowledge of stills has been gained from trial, chance and tradition. There may be a lot of market veneering about replicating dents in new stills, but we shouldn't lose track of how early stills were formed, often made by travelling craftsmen and at a time of limited resources, the illicit distiller would likely fall back on superstitions and reducing the risk of change. Once the distiller had found a still that met his or her needs, why risk changing it? Of course, in those days, the demands of a still were different. They would often need to be able to be broken up and concealed or camouflaged. They had to be movable or even appear to be something else. Over generations, with changes in law, with increased opportunity, developments in technology and a changing world, stills evolved. They became bigger. They became driven by scientific and engineering awareness and altered by health and safety. The direct fired stills became less common. After all, the presence of naked flames around such volatile vapours was an accident that wasn't just waiting to happen. It often did happen. As cold fire stills became less common, so did some of the heavy work of, of shoveling coal, and some of the strange sights, such as coal being painted white, so that it would stand out if it were to find itself in a domestic fire. And of course, there is another way of finding out if some of that coal found its way into a domestic fire, because some of that coal would be burning at a much higher temperature than normal domestic coal would, and that could cause damage to the fireplace. What became more common was the presence of stills using alternative heat sources, such as gas, electric, steam, more effective, more efficient and safer. And to be honest, if it generates the same amount of heat, does it really make a difference? Well, some would say yes. You see, a direct-fired still has areas of high intense heat. It's not a, an even heat. It can cause a burning, a caramelization at the base of the still. This, then, requires the use of a rummager, a, an area of copper chain mail that moves over the base of the still and constantly breaks these burnt areas loose. This introduces a flavour profile to the spirit as well as increased copper contact. Not only contact, but also a degree of its change as the copper becomes thinned much quicker. But 
it also changes some of the skill base of the people operating those stills. You see, making a fire from coal in a controlled way was an absolute art. Of course, there is much more to the still than just a base. There's the neck as well. The neck is often the part that makes the biggest visual difference and a big flavour difference as well. And what a variety there is. This tall, short, thin, wide, simple, straight, restricted, lanterned, it all makes a difference. Not only to the product, but to the way that a still operates. Some, for example, will be prone to boiling over when the liquid bubbles up and overflows down the line arm, absolutely spoiling the whole process. A practice that has resulted in some using soap to reduce the, the foaming effect, and in some stills the inclusion of a window so that it can be observed a lot better. And of course computerization has had an effect on that, given the stills more given the distilleries more control over that process. Although some say, you know, it takes away some of the personal touch, some of the character as well. I'm not going to get into that debate, certainly not right now. The main aspect is determining the amount of contact with the copper and the type of vapours that make it out of the still. This is not to say that one type is better than the other. It's more to say that one type goes towards a certain type of character. See, it's getting the best for the particular character of a particular whiskey, rather than saying that that one is better than that one. A distillery is, in many ways, a meeting place barley from farms, meat with native water, and yeasts, well, yeast from a number of possible places, and also different types, not only different strains of yeast, but yeast that could be dry yeast from the other side of the world, or in some cases, for some distilleries, fresh yeast that has been made there and then on the premises. And these things come together, along with wood, that's come from America or Europe, even the Caribbean or Japan, and they all come together there in the distillery. But where does the still comes from? The answer is that many come from Rothis in Scotland, and to be specific, from a company known as Forsyth. Now, I've been in touch with Richard Forsyth. Actually, that I've been in touch with two Richard Forsyths because there's a, a senior and a junior version and I've had contact with both of them on more than one occasion by email and the reason I've had to be in contact on more than one occasion is because they have been going through what they call their busy period and I'm going to be honest here I find that term for them the busy period a bit difficult to understand and the reason for that is if you actually look at what they actually do it's hard to imagine 
that they even have a quiet period. I just think they must be busy the whole year round. This is a company that doesn't only make pot stills, they make all sorts of distillery plant work, but also have an involvement in other areas such as the paper making industry. In fact, 50% of the company's turnover is not with stills at all, but with the oil and gas industries, which they got involved in in the early 1990s. It was in the late 1890s that things started kicking off with this company. It began with Alexander Forsyth, who was a coppersmith for a company called Willison. Now, this included copper pipe work for the shipping industry in Sunderland, but it also included the Murrayshire copper works in Rothis. And as Willison had no family to leave the company to, Alexander Forsyth bought it from them in 1933. A brave move, considering the state of the world at that time. On returning from World War II, Ernest Toot Forsyth took over the company. Now, I just want to say a little something about that name, Ernest Toot Forsyth. The name Toot comes from when he was a baby. He was one of seven children, and he'd be rocked in the cradle by his older brother Stanley, who used to sing to him and called him Toot. The name stuck, and he grew up with it. And it's said that from distillery boardroom to brewer's office, many people didn't even know his real name was Ernest. Stanley, who sang to him, grew up to become a minister but a minister who liked his dram. I get that sense that whiskey is in the blood of this family. Now, Ernest Toot Forsyth, and I actually have to say I love that name, Toot. It just makes it personal, doesn't it? It makes you understand that this is a real person, not just a name in a history book. He took over the company, and he was joined by his sons William and Richard in 1968, with Richard actually taking it over in the mid-1970s. And then the company moved from Green Street to Old Station Yard. In 2008, Richard was joined by his son, also called Richard, who has degrees in chemical and mechanical engineering. And in the same year, 2008, William retired. Now that brings the company to four generations and makes it older than some of the distilleries they serve. Although some of those distilleries are actually very young. Take, for example, Annandale, not even reopened yet. Or the King Car Distillery in Taiwan, makers of Cavalan. Now, they have got a fully automated distillery, designed, made and installed by Forsyth, from the point of the grain going in to the spirit coming out. This is not their only international project by a long way. This company operates in a truly global scale and this requires a lot of planning and negotiation. It's not just a matter of knocking together a copper pot in Scotland. 
This company has made 24,000 litre charge rum pots. In fact, they've made 10 of them, eight of which are in Jamaica, two of which are in South Africa. Now, such projects need careful assessment of needs, plans and payment schemes, not to mention the logistics and fabrication issues. Not all of it is made in Scotland. Where appropriate, they will source things locally, and that includes labour. On the other end of the scale, they will also do charge pots of a mere 50 litres. And as for companies that they have on their list, their customers include Perno Ricard, William Grants, Edrington, Diageo, Centauri, Glenlivet, McAllen, Glimrangi. I could go on and on and on. It is an interesting and diverse company that is such an important part of this whiskey industry. Now some could say that it's actually at the heart of the industry. I find it interesting that in ancient times it was felt that we had a small fire in our hearts. It was what warmed the blood, so they thought. And if it got too hot, it could cause a case of the vapours. And when that flame went out, we died. A bit like a little kiln inside of us. Now these people, Forsyths, they may not be the ones who ignite the flame, but in many ways they are the heart surgeons. And without their role, we would not progress from beer to whiskey. Now if you want to see an illicit still being made, I would recommend watching the film Pachine Making and details of that in my previous episode called Pachine. Whilst in its simplest form, the still is nothing but a kettle. It is in reality the home of an immense number of processes going on within the still walls. In a kettle, you apply heat, water boils, steam comes out. But within that process, things are happening. Now let's start with the heating process. We've already mentioned direct and indirect heat, but that's not the only heat source. The liquid itself gets hot, and as these vapours rise and condense on the walls of the cooler parts of the still, they also give up some of their heat. The vapours cool, but the still warms. Now this is further affected by the room temperature. In the middle of a cold winter, the still will take longer to heat up. Condensation will occur for longer, and there is much more copper contact. In the middle of a hot summer, the reverse happens. One of the reasons some distilleries actually stop producing during the summer. It's simply too hot for it. The contact with the copper is like microscopic scrubbing brushes that remove some of the unwanted flavours from the spirit, especially things like sulphides. But that is not the only process going on. Light flavoured aspects tend to also be lighter in weight, the molecular chain is shorter, and the vapours rise up the still more easily. Heavier vapours, those that sometimes carry the cereal flavours, 
don't manage this and the and they call against the walls of the still and then fall back down to be reheated and vapored yet again but this still is getting hotter and more and more able to affect the contents the vapors start to cool against the still wall but as the still wall gets hotter they will then be re-energized and can actually move condensation is less and more vapors rise out the heavier compounds not only get changed by the copper but the heat also can alter them break them down enable them to escape this process of vapors rising cooling falling then rising again is known as reflux and it can be encouraged in different ways each one with a different effect the principle for maximum reflux is quite straightforward you have hot liquid a large cool surface area and height so a tall wide neck on a broad base will have a high degree of reflux very tall thin necks will also have high amounts of reflux because the upper levels of that neck are going to be cooler and the constriction at the base of the neck will reduce the amount of heat being distributed throughout the neck of the still and that in turn will give more reflux or they will also change the way that the vapors flow within it now one could also use alternative methods such as actually cooling the neck of the still by for example running water down that neck of the still whilst the base is being heated now that is what happens at Fetacan distillery but it's not just the amount of reflux it is also where and when it happens reflux near the base of the still will involve different densities of vapors than those higher up the still the makeup of the stills content will change as time goes by and vapors escape so reflux in the early stage of distillation will be different to that at later stages of distillation this is also altered by the way the still is handled the rate and style of change can be altered by how much charge or liquid goes into the still less liquid will boil quicker the rate of heating also makes a difference now get two saucepans full of water and two with only a small amount put one of each of those under a low heat and the others under a high heat and watch what happens they all will respond in different ways at different times some will produce a nice rolling boil another possibly a gentle simmer and another one will just suddenly boil dry and that makes a big difference a small amount of charge for example going into a big still and being heated really intensely very quickly will cause almost all the vapors to go straight through without any reflux at all a gentle heat with a large charge will could have the opposite effect of course the still doesn't end there the vapors have to pass through the line arm and these 
can be angled. Some will go up, some will go straight, some will head down. And again, that will affect the amount of reflux, the amount of ease in which those vapours go through. Some don't even come out of the very top of the still, but just a little bit below, making it again a bit harder for those vapours to, to pass through. It's not something that's going to happen quite so naturally. And once they get through the line arm, we come onto the cooling area, be that by condenser or be that by worm. But that's a different episode, I think. Now, so far, we've been talking about pot stills. And, of course, the other thing about pot stills is that distilleries, and this is an obvious thing to say, will have more than one type of still. Because normally what happens is there are two stills working in partnership with each other. One for the wash still, for the initial distillation, and then the product of that distillation will go through into the second still or the spirit still to be further distilled, hence getting a double distillation. Now that is the common way of doing it in Scotland. In Ireland, traditionally, that is done three times a triple distillation and of course there is a distillery Brookladdy that has distilled four times the quadruple distillation so that gives the ability as well of using different types of still at different stages you might have one still going with high levels of reflux and then the second still not so much reflux and getting the balance between those two again makes a big difference. This simple kettle that we call the still is clearly a lot more complicated and prone to a lot more fine-tuning than one might first think. But that's the pot still, the beautiful, wonderful pot still. But if you can imagine putting plates inside the neck of the pot still and instead of the neck coming up gently to a, to a tapered point, actually having parallel sides so as to make a column, you could have then what is known as a Lohman still. Now these plates can be adjustable and give flexibility as well as reflux. Designed by Alistair Cunningham in 1955 in cooperation with Arthur Warren. The idea is a simple one. To make a still with adjustable components and a wide variety of whiskies can be made then from just the one still. The internal plates can be turned, effectively opening or closing them. They could actually be water-cooled and the angle of the line arm could also be adjusted. Now, Now it all makes sense. You can end up having one still that can do everything. But they don't look as nice as the traditional pot still. And they're very hard to clean. And despite the flexibility, many felt that the spirit was heavy and oily. Although there is some dispute and some tests of blind tasting actually didn't necessarily find that. Hiram Walker installed some in their distilleries, but to be honest, very few remain, and some of those that do have had the internal plates taken out.
Now, if we started off with the pot still, then we move to the lineman still, the next one in line to get away from the pot still would be the hybrid still, as found at Penderen, and was described in the recent episode I did about Penderen. Their still was initially to be a tall, single-column still, but planning permission wouldn't allow them to have a building quite as tall as that, and that led them to having to have a two-part configuration. But the still they got there is not that far removed from the Lohman still. The real alternative still would be the continuous still, different in both appearance and in operation. Let's think about some of those differences. Instead of being filled in batches like a pot still, it is fed continuously into the side of the column. The second difference is that instead of being a single pot, it is in the form of two columns. A third difference is the way that it is heated. In fact, there's so many differences. Let's start from the beginning on this one. In its basic form, Wash enters the first of two columns. Now this first column could be called the stripping column or the analyzer. The wash moves down the column and is met by steam. The heat from the steam releases the lovely stuff inside of that wash that we want to get hold of. What's left flows out of the column whilst those desired vapors rise up and enter into the second or rectifying column. There it is cooled and gathered. The advantage of this is that it is cheaper to run. It's effective, it's efficient and great for bulk production. What the disadvantages are is that it lacks some of the, the fine control Whilst a pot still has different characters at different stages of distillation, such as the four shots, the different cuts, the continuous still doesn't. The continuous still produces a higher ABV, lighter flavoured spirit, and it does it continuously. Now this makes it okay for vodka and the like, but not so great for single malt whiskey. So its use is more related to the distillation of grain whiskies. The continuous still was to have a big impact on the world of whisky. It enabled the onset of not only the production of grain whisky, but also of blending. This was to be very controversial and came at a time when a lot was happening. The Phyloxera, Vasterix, Laos had all but ruined cognac, and drinkers were at that point looking for alternatives. Irish distillers turned away from the idea of blending malt and grain whisky together. They felt that that was an inferior product, and they wanted to stick with those traditional Irish ways of pot still whisky. The Scots, however, turned towards it. Initially, it was Andrew Usher, an agent of the Glenlivet, who began to blend, but this lighter, blended whisky gained approval and soon led to others, the whisky barons, people such as Buchanan and Dewar. Now, initially, the continuous still 
was begun by Robert Stein, a Scot, but the main work was ironically that of a French-born Irishman who was to develop the still that led the world away from Irish and towards Scotch. Now if his nationality wasn't ironic enough, his profession was even more so. Ireland had been heavily taxed, and that taxation was enforced by the excise men, at that point often with military support. Yes, it was a French-born Irish excise man by the name of Aeneas Coffey that was to change whisky with a still design that is known to this day as the Coffee Still. Now his treatment on the hands of the Irish distillers, especially some of those illicit distillers that are around, wasn't always that great. Now I'm looking at page 234 of one of my favourite, and well actually one of my first whiskey books, Classic Irish Whiskey by Jim Murray. And on this page it says, A few years earlier in Inner Shawin, Aeneas Coffey, who later went on to become both Inspector General of Excise and the inventor of a continuous still which bears his name to this day, narrowly escaped with his life after a North Donegal illicit distilling militia set about him with such venom he was fortunate to live and achieve later fame. He recalled that day they fractured my skull, left my body one mass of contusion, and gave me two bayonet wounds, one of which completely perforated my thigh. I owed my life to the rapid approach of the military party from which I had imprudently wandered a few hundred yards. Wow. Now, if you want to hear some other instances of things like that. Again, I'd refer you to a previous episode of mine uh, simply called Pachin. Now, although the Irish turned away from that still, the Scots didn't, and neither did the Americans or the Canadians. In fact, many other people around the world have embraced that still, which is why, although Scotch whiskey is frequently double distilled and Irish whiskey is triple distilled many other whiskies are just single distilled using a continuous still although that is normally grain whiskey not malt whiskey and I say normally because of course there is a coffee malt whiskey available from Japan however Going back to Ireland, single grain whiskey, not so common. In fact, I think there's still only one available. Well, thank you again for listening to this episode of the More to Muse podcast. If you haven't heard them already, there is a back catalogue of other episodes available on iTunes. And if anybody wants to contact me, they can do so. My email address is jim at themaltedmuse.com. There's the website, www.themaltedmuse.com. And there's also Twitter, Twitter at themaltedmuse. So thank you again for listening. I hope you'll listen next week. And until then, 
Thank you and goodbye.